Welcome to the Veterinary Success Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Douglas. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Jenny Rizzo, who is a critical care veterinarian and president and founder of the Lone Star Veterinary Academy and executive board member of the American Heartworm Society. Dr. Rizzo, thanks so much for joining me today. Hi, thank you for inviting me to do this. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, and I'm excited because you've not done any other podcast. It makes my job so much easier because I don't have to kind of go out and try to source new material that you maybe have shared somewhere else. So it'll be exciting to get your voice out there and have people get to know you a little bit. Yeah, it'll be interesting to be the one talking on a podcast instead of the one listening. Yeah. Just to kick it off, I guess, going kind of down that path, favorite podcasts, non-veterinary related. Anything come to mind? Yes. This is going to already expose my inner nerdiness, but my favorite non-veterinary podcasts are a handful of podcasts about Disney World. There you go. <laughs> I did want to kick things off and talk a little bit about the Lone Star Vet Academy in what that looks like today, what was the origin story, and how that all came into being. So I suppose there's a long version and a short version of the story. So I'll try not to be too long-winded. But the first thing that led me to it was that I wasn't super satisfied with practicing full-time. I wanted to find something else still in the realm of veterinary medicine that I could do that maybe didn't involve going to a hospital every day. And then I started getting to know people that plan continuing education or teach classes or just otherwise work in industry through the American Heartworm Society. And our previous executive director, Dr. Kathy Galloyd, put me onto the idea of a veterinary academy because there are a few that already exist out in the world. So I took that little idea that she gave me and turned it into Lone Star Vet Academy. And the intention behind the Vet Academy is to offer a safe place that veterinarians can go and feel like they are an individual and not a person in a crowd of 10,000 or 20 or 50,000 people, depending on which of the other big conferences we're talking about. And I want everyone to be able to get to know each other, to feel comfortable asking questions. We really focus on making sure there's good food, lots of coffee. We just want it to be an all-around fun, easygoing, useful experience, as opposed to what many of our conferences are, which is getting up early and walking two miles to find a cup of coffee and then waiting in line of 300 people to get into the crowded lecture hall and trying not to bump elbows with the person next to you while you're writing your notes. We just want to avoid all of that. And so I suppose this came into existence because I wanted to find a better CE experience. And I also wanted to break out of regular practice. Yeah. And I think it's interesting to see a pain point and then develop something around that as far as a solution, which is very common for anyone that wants to start a business or be entrepreneurial in any way. So that makes complete sense. When we chatted initially, you kind of mentioned by nature, you're an introvert, yet you host this CE event. And you talked about community and people being around each other, and getting to know each other and really having that relationship feel versus being just crammed in and, hey, here's the speaker. Can you talk about how hosting stuff with LSVA and you kind of being naturally introverted, has it helped you come out of that? Have you seen changes in yourself? Like, has it pushed you a little bit more than you thought initially? Or has it been something where you feel comfortable and it hasn't made you feel like you've had to stretch yourself as much as what you initially thought? Well, parts would have definitely pushed me outside my comfort zone a bit, just in the sense that this involves some public speaking, which I 
never thought I would really do. But on the other hand, the vet academy is a really introvert friendly thing to do. And I want other vets who are introverts to feel like they can come and not be overwhelmed the way that I would normally be overwhelmed at a really big conference. And so we do quite a bit to make it so that you can be an introvert and still come to a conference and not experience as much of the usual introvert stress that you might. And so if you don't want to sit really close to people, you don't have to. If you don't want to talk to a lot of people, you don't have to. But the events are small enough. And I think everyone's really friendly and easygoing that you can talk to people and not feel silly. You can ask a question and not feel silly. And then on a personal level, to take care of myself as an introvert, when we do these events, I just make sure that I keep a nice routine and that everything is organized. And at the actual in-person conferences, I always rent a, a little room off to the side of the a lecture hall that I can go and sit alone if I need to. I love that. And I've seen that at a couple different conferences where they have kind of an introvert room, which is really just more of a low lit. Don't go in there with your phone. Just go in and kind of hang out, relax and just unwind and get away from some people. And with yeah. me being very much an extrovert, I love. And that's one thing I miss with in-person conferences is being able to have connection and I get energy from other people where for me, like those are great experiences to be around the people and the amount of action that's there. But yeah, if I was wired the exact opposite, it would definitely be stressful and something where you're like, I just need to be able to recharge by getting away from all these people and then letting me get ready for the next event or the next thing that you have going on. So definitely can appreciate that and love the idea of having somewhere to take yourself out of the action and kind of recharge. My husband's the opposite of me. He's an extrovert and he would spend all of his time with other people talking if he could. And so he rescues me too. When we do these events, we do them together. And if I get tired of talking and being out in front, then he can easily take over. And he's super helpful in that way. Yeah, that's awesome that you're able to work on stuff together as a couple. You mentioned initially in the first question as well that you didn't necessarily want to practice full-time and be in a clinic five, six days a week. Can you tell a little bit around that story? Because I know you kind of teased it when we first talked that there was a reason for that, or you had thought about not wanting that. But can you share maybe why that is and how you came to that realization, I guess, because I think that's important to realize that you didn't want that and what makes you happy? So I suppose that explanation gets into talking about how important I think self-care is and how important it is to think about what you want and what makes you happy. And what I was finding after graduation was that working full-time in an emergency hospital setting could be really overwhelming. Working lots of hours, really long shifts, missing sleep, missing holidays with family, all of those things started to take a toll on me, on my physical health, on my mental well-being. And through some coaching and classes and self-reflection, I just came to the decision that I feel better and do a better job and think that I'm more helpful when I limit the number of hours I spend in a clinic. Because if I am there too long or for too many days in a row, or I see too many patients, then I think the quality of my communication skills and my general work just goes down. And I'm not as happy. Yeah. I think being able to realize that and like you said, reflect internally is huge. And I would assume that feeds into kind of why you didn't have desires for ownership. So anyone that's listened to 
this podcast has known that I am an advocate for that. But I've also said many times, like it's not always the right fit for everyone. And certainly sounds like it's not a fit for you. If you don't want to be there as often, you couldn't be an owner because you would have to be more plugged in. Mm-hmm. Would you say that is kind of like a, just an extension of that desire not to be so connected to the practice is why ownership didn't make sense for you? Or were there other things that was never really a desire even from day one? Well, I think the major reason is just back to what I was just talking about that I can't see myself being in the clinic 24-7 or being tied to it 24-7 because there are just a lot of factors that cause me a lot of stress and that I'm not as good at managing as maybe people who are practice owners would be good at managing. And so that's what led me away from practice and into ownership of different kinds of activities. One more thing that I want to put out there that was one of the most helpful things anyone has ever said to me that helped me physically be able to step away from thinking that I needed to practice full time and then put me on the path towards finding something else to do. There's a coach and her name is Julie Squires. And I credit her with anything that I know or I'm going to say today about wellness and self-care. It's all something that I learned from her. And she works specifically with veterinarians. But I went and heard her talk at a conference in 2017, I think it was. And she said that if you never help another animal again, if you never work another day in your life, that you've already done enough. Just by having been a vet or a technician or whoever you are for one day, if you helped one pet or one family, that's enough and you never have to do it again. And that was such a surprising thought to me. I would have never thought that. And before that point, my whole mindset was that I needed to work more and more and more and more because you can never help enough animals. And so that thinking that, oh, I already helped a lot of animals and that's enough. I did a good job. That's fine. That was really freeing. Yeah. Being able to have permission to step away and not sacrifice yourself for everyone else, I think is really impactful. Yeah. I love that. I'm not familiar with Julie, but I will have to check out her stuff and maybe she'll make an appearance sometime if I am able to reach out and connect with her because I think that'd be an interesting conversation as well. But continuing the conversation around self-care and wellness, you highlighted a couple different areas that I'd like to dig into, but I was going to ask biggest lesson learned, but I think you just answered it there with Julie and kind of her permission to step away and say, you've done enough. You don't need to do more. But was there anything else impactful from either Julie or someone else that you've learned maybe even recently, like this past year from the self-care and wellness that you've seen and it's been helpful for you? So this year during COVID, there have been so many ups and downs. And this has felt in a lot of ways like a harder year than I've ever experienced. So I think what I've learned from that is that if you don't decide what to think from day to day, if you're not conscious of what you're thinking and choosing good thoughts over bad ones, then you're just never going to be happy. And some days I do a better job of living that than others. Some days I do a terrible job of (laughs) choosing. You and me both. But it's last year at the end of the year when I was reflecting on how last year went and where I wanted to go this year, I thought to myself that I didn't have enough free time last year that I was too busy working on projects and didn't spend enough time having fun. And this year, a lot of my work has been taken away because of the nature of COVID. We can't have public events. I can't go to meeting after meeting after meeting with people. And so all of a sudden, I have tons of free time to play with my dogs and cook and go for walks. And I still caught myself not being happy with that, even though last year, that's what I said I wanted. And so it just really brings the point home that 
you can decide in any moment to be happy just based on what you're thinking, or you can decide not to if you're not conscious. And I think there's been, and I can't cite a specific study or exactly where I've seen it or heard it, but you look at people in third world countries or countries that have far less than we do in the United States and how their happiness level can sometimes be far higher than the average American, right? Where we have so many different blessings that we just take so much for granted versus someone that is literally hoping to find clean water that day can be a heck of a lot happier than someone in the United States where their biggest issue is something that happened on social media or something, for example. Like, and that's so trivial compared to all the other challenges that someone else out there has. You brought up three different areas I thought were really interesting. I like to dive in and I'll just kind of list them and then you can jump into each one or one of the three, whatever you want to do. But you talked about how veterinary medicine charges, the schedules that a lot of veterinarians keep, and then being able to set boundaries as being kind of those three key areas within wellness and self-care that you feel passionate about and have some thoughts. I thought they were fantastic. I'd love to hear what you think and what you can maybe share with the audience. So if we pick up the idea of scheduling, again, everything that I know comes back to what Julie Squires taught me. (laughs) So one of the things that she helped me learn right off the bat was that I didn't need to say yes every time someone needed a shift covered. I didn't need to say yes to working every single holiday. And that maybe working 16-hour shifts isn't reasonable. Maybe there's a better balance than that. And I think there are probably a lot of veterinarians and technicians and other people in the veterinary field that just like to help people and like to help animals and think that that means that we need to work as much as possible or stay late every day or come in early and we end up giving up too much and not taking good enough care of ourselves. And that's when you get burnt out. And that's kind of where I was a few years ago. And so when I started giving myself permission to have a lighter schedule or work shorter shifts because working 16 hours would give me a migraine, but working eight hours is okay. That made a lot of things better. And then we talked about boundaries. That's almost the same as talking about the schedule, except boundaries just includes more topics. Anything that makes you uncomfortable, you can set a boundary around that. And I don't know that I'm the best person to talk about how to do it, but I know that if anybody wants to reach out to Julie, she has some very specific rules for basically a three-step Here's how you set a boundary. Here's why you set a boundary. Here's how you stick to your boundary. And practicing that with my family, with work, with clients, that can be very freeing too. I was going to ask for an example of a boundary, if there was one that was top of mind between, I think you kind of hit on a couple, but is there any specific ones that you've seen that have been better if it was either family or within the practice with clients? So a boundary that I think I do a pretty good job with now, but that took quite a bit of time to work on and that I did get some resistance to in the process is that I don't want to field phone calls or text messages from the clinic every day that I'm not in the clinic. And so there are certain situations where I'm the only person with the answer and I just need to be available to answer it. But there are lots of times, probably other people will relate to this, when you might get a text message from somebody at work with a question that you don't really need to be the one to answer, or they could find the answer in the record, or they're asking where a piece of equipment is, and maybe they can ask somebody else who's at work where the piece of equipment is. And so I started working on that boundary as a major one, and then encouraging other people to set the same boundaries for themselves, because we don't all need to talk to each other constantly when we're not at home. It's okay to have 
family time and disconnect from work, that was a difficult boundary to keep, but it's working out really well, just that we all stuck to it. Yeah. And I think if everyone takes a step back and realizes the impact that that could have on themselves, it's like, yeah, we can still get the answers to the questions that we need. We just don't have to bring in other people because they probably get annoyed just as much as anyone else if they were on the other end of the questions all the time. Like they're like, "Ah, I don't want to answer that. I want to be able to do X, Y, Z at home with my kids or my spouse or whatever it is. Go for a walk, like you said, like other things that you don't have to be constantly connected. And that's the hard part of having the connectivity that we have today with our phones and other things like you're always on or can be unless you do set good boundaries. I think it's a great example. You kind of mentioned it, I think, a little bit just with schedules and people coming in and working crazy hours and just, again, having to be on. But how do you think about veterinary medicine and charging? From my limited experience compared to yours or other veterinarians listening, I always feel like veterinarians undercharge and undervalue their skill set. And I've said that so many different times over and over again. But be curious to kind of hear your input and feedback on what you've seen and the conversations that you've had. Yes, there's no right answer to this question. In a lot of ways, I do think that veterinarians undervalue themselves and hospitals undercharge or give away a lot of services that they shouldn't really need to give away. And then on the other hand, there's no price you can put on a veterinary service that everyone's going to be happy with, even if the amount is free. Because I have worked in plenty of charity clinics where everything is free or where maybe the city is giving you a certificate so you can come and get services free there. And people can be just as happy or just as unhappy about the free service as they can be when I'm working in an emergency clinic on Christmas Eve and they're coming in for some sort of serious problem. And so I don't think that there's an answer where, you know, if we all set our prices equal, then this problem would go away. Or if we all charge more, then we would all feel better. Or if we all charge less, we would feel better. I don't think there's a universal solution to this. Maybe insurance will be helpful. I think we can maybe try to be more accepting of the idea that everybody's going to have a different opinion forever on what's a good amount to charge for something and just decide what works for you and your practice and just stick with it because you're going to see different people every day and half the people are going to think that you're charging great prices and half the people are going to think you're charging too much and just do what feels right to you. I agree. And it's even funny just coming from the financial planning world, there's always discussions on fees and what you charge people and you should charge this and I charge this way and this way is better. And this is the more ethical way to do it. And it's like, well, at the end of the day, someone's going to pay you for what you do. And yeah, exactly right. You have to feel comfortable saying I can justify what I charge. It's fair. It's equitable. Like people are getting value from this service because if you felt like, oh my gosh, I'm gouging these people internally, that's going to destroy you over time. Even if your business does well for a couple of years or whatever, like you want to get to the point where you're comfortable and you feel like this does make sense. So I think it's a really good point. You can get your arms around, okay, what do you need to charge to make money to be able to keep the lights on, pay people because they have families, they have bills, they have things that they need to cover and you do as well, especially as an owner. But what's the trade-off between trying to do something a little bit higher end versus being something that's more volume-based? And yeah, you just have to decide what you want your workplace to look like? How do you want your days to be spent? And then try to charge appropriately. But it also is going to be very dependent depending on if you're in Texas, New York City, Miami, like who knows, your pricing could be very different depending on who the demographics and the population around you are as well. You can't be everything to everyone. You never will be. And so it's probably 
a lot more freeing to decide on a motto, decide on principles, decide what your clinic is about, and then set your prices accordingly. Absolutely. And at the top, we talked a little bit about the American Heartworm Society. Can you talk a little bit about your work there? I know you do a lot with students as well. I just thought that would be a good segue to some of the other things that you're doing. So really, I just had the good fortune of working with uh, Dr. Dr. Wally Graham in Corpus Christi, Texas. He was a mentor of mine, really, at the very first practice I worked at after graduating from vet school. And he was a past president of the American Heartworm Society and just asked if I might want to get involved. And so I did. And it's been amazing. I really like being able to advocate for something that helps everyone. It helps animals, it helps clients, it helps veterinarians. And one of the major things that I do with the Heartworm Society is work with veterinary students, try to make sure that everybody coming out of vet school already knows who we are and what the AHS can do for them. There's all sorts of cool resources that they can use to help communicate better with their clients, to help educate themselves, to help decide on the best course of treatment when they do come across heartworm positive pets. And that's my favorite thing that I do with AHS. And beyond working with the veterinary students, we as a group have several different initiatives throughout the year to help educate the public about heartworms, to help make sure we're reaching more and more and more veterinary communities and to help giving veterinarians resources to, this is important now, to fight misinformation. Mm -hmm. It seems to be more and more of that in the world, thanks to social media and the internet. I just think with the students and kind of what your role has been there and just the connectivity of not only just the United States, right? Like it's gone international as well. So the United States is not the only country that has heartworms. And so I've been working on trying to reach out to veterinary students internationally. And lots of the other board members have helped me with that. We just had a talk last week with the students at Royal Veterinary College in the UK, and it's just really interesting to hear other universities' perspectives or international perspectives on heartworm disease. Not every country has access to heartworm treatment. Not every country has access to heartworm prevention. And we're early in this process, maybe six months into getting to know more international students, but it's been eye-opening and educational all around. Is there a path for students while they're in veterinary school to get connected to the American Heartworm Society? Or do you have any programs like that? Or is it something that's more or less after they graduate, if they were more interested in getting involved, that would be the time? So veterinary students can join a committee on the board of the Heartworm Society so they can help us with outreach and awareness just to the general public. And they can also apply to be a student liaison where they sort of become the Heartworm Society representative for their university. Students who do that work a lot with me. I'm in touch with them every other week or so, making sure that they have everything they need to tell their classmates about heartworms. And the students who are liaisons or the students who are on committees, they have in the past set up wet labs at their schools. They've done summer camps for elementary and middle school kids to learn about heartworms and then hopefully go home and teach their parents about heartworm prevention. We've had students be on local radio shows to talk about heartworms. And there's a lot of opportunity that opens up if they want to reach out and try to be involved. Very cool. Yeah, I just wanted to touch on that because I do know that you're very tied into the student population. And I know there's a number of different students that listen. So 
it's a great opportunity from that standpoint. Also, just from a networking, but education and connecting with your peers around the country. I think that's really cool. And now uh, maybe globally as well. The question that I usually try to start to wrap up with is around like a soapbox topic. So anything that's passion that's on your heart that maybe you wish more of your peers understood it can be anything. It can be something we talked about. It can be something maybe I failed to ask about today that you feel like is that important that needs to be shared. Well, probably my soapbox topic still revolves around self-care <laughs> and well-being and that I would love to see a world where we don't have to talk about how high suicide rates are in veterinary medicine or how many of us are burned out or how many of us quit because we have anxiety or depression or any other number of things. I would love for everybody to think that it is important to take care of themselves. And I would love for there to be widely available support, whether it's mental health support, a life coach, a therapist, a doctor whatever you need. I'd wish that everybody knew exactly where to turn to get that kind of help. And for me, my help is Julie Squires. And she calls herself a life coach. And so what she does is tries to teach tools that can help you live your life and help you cope with things. But I, now that I know her, I just wish everyone had one of her. Yeah. So just find a way to duplicate her efforts, quadruple, you know, just make her or someone like her available to more people. I love that. One thing I didn't pass along to you, but I started to ask is any questions or if you have a question for me that you want to ask and get answered, fire away. If not, we can skip over that and kind of wrap up. What made you decide to start this podcast? Yeah, so that is a good question. The reason I wanted to start the podcast was just knowing that if I was going to be, you talked about all things to all people, like that was not what I wanted to be. I think a lot of financial advisors are kind of like, hey, if you have money, you're a great client. Where I want to be very dedicated and specific to veterinary medicine and dentistry. And so for me to learn and educate, I like podcasts. I listen to a lot of podcasts. That's how I take in information. And so I was looking for a veterinary specific podcast that would educate me. Couldn't find one that was more on the like business or like financial piece of it, as far as kind of understanding the dynamics there. Clinical, I think there's a handful of good clinical stuff, but that wasn't ever really going to help me as much because I'm not going to come in and tell someone that has a DVM clinical advice. Like that's just never going to work well. So it was really just recording conversations that I wanted to have already with people I felt were interesting and then just sharing that with other people. And that was kind of the genesis of the podcast. I thought of another soapbox. Can I go on? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) It's the beauty of a longer form podcast. So I get asked a lot where do you see yourself in five years or where do you see yourself in 10 years? Or when you're in vet school, the question is, what are you going to do when you graduate? And what part of veterinary medicine are you going into? I've never been good at answering that question. And I don't even really like the question because I don't like the idea of deciding now what I will be doing in five years, because I'm afraid that's going to shut me off to some cool thing that might catch my eye next year or the year after. And so since when I started vet school, I started vet school specifically to become a zoo veterinarian. And then through the course of vet school, decided that maybe I didn't want to do that. And so then I did exotic animal practice and emergency practice. I've worked at shelters, spay and neuter clinics, wellness clinics, referral centers. Now I make conferences and it's only been eight years since I graduated from vet school. And I've done a whole bunch of different things. And I, I've liked and loved parts of all of them. And then the things that I don't like, I stopped doing. And so <laughs> I guess the soapbox is that you don't really have to 
pick one thing to do and keep doing it forever. It's okay to stop doing something if it's not making you happy. It's okay to pursue an idea that you might have, even if it might not work out. It's still going to be fun trying it. I love it. I think if I had to summarize it, being able to be adaptive and see if there's opportunities and try something and not being afraid of saying, well, I like what I do now, but I might like this other thing better. Take the opportunity, go try it because it could be unlocking the door to something that you really didn't even know that you loved far, far, far more. And that to me is really cool. I would agree with you. I mean, if I would have said five years ago that I'd be doing what I'm doing now, I'd be like, no way. I didn't have any idea that this would be what I would be doing now. So I completely agree with that. I actually really love that from a soapbox topic. It can sound a little disorganized, but it's really not. The idea is just not to be afraid if you come up with a new idea or if you don't like what you're doing, then don't be afraid to change it. 100%. So for those that are listening that are interested in whether it's learning more about Lone Star Vet Academy, you personally, American Heartworm Society, where would you send them? How do they connect with you? Yeah. Where would you like them to reach out? Well, you can reach out to me directly at Dr. Rizzo, just Dr. Rizzo at LoneStarVetAcademy.com. That's my email address and I'll always answer. I usually answer within minutes unless it's the middle of the night. Or you can also, there's a contact form at the LoneStarVetAcademy.com website and I get all of those emails too. But email is really the best way to reach me. Perfect. And I will link to all that in the show notes and also to anything else that we chatted on. But Dr. Rizza, thank you so much for joining me, sharing a little bit about your journey. And I love the way that you've been adaptable over time in kind of pursuing the things that bring you joy and happiness. And I think that's something that's really, really unique and special and that people need to think more about. Thank you so much for having me. I hope people find this interesting. Or if you don't, I hope you find something else to listen to that's more interesting. (laughs) (laughs) But this is a really fun new experience being the one talking instead of the one listening. So thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. The comments made on today's show should not be taken as investment, tax, or legal advice. All comments are for educational purposes only. You should consult your team before implementing anything. Isaiah Douglas is a partner of Vincere Wealth Management. Isaiah is registered in the state of Indiana, California, Texas. The biggest compliment you can give to this podcast is to share it with a friend. Reviews help the show get found, and Apple Podcasts is the platform that predominantly is how people listen to the show. If you have three to five minutes, you like the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts, give us an honest rating and review that'll help more people find the show. For all of today's links and information, head over to veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. There you can subscribe via your favorite podcast platform platform so you won't miss another episode. Finally, if you'd like more information, insights, and have the ability for your voice to be heard and interact with show guests, join the private Facebook group. You can go to the Veterinary Success Podcast on Facebook or head over to the veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. Scroll all the way to the bottom where it says about your host and then click on the Facebook icon. That'll bring you into the Facebook group. I'll approve you. You'll be in. And then I'd love to hear your questions, feedback, and anything that you'd like to see added to the show. So with all that, thank you so much for listening. I'll be talking again to you soon.